1: Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. We're going to feature something a little bit different today. I have been very guilty of not having considered the women of this period in any proper detail. And I reckon today I'm going to get a bit of a bashing round the head from today's guest for having failed to do so. But we will put that right. I am joined by Samantha Jolly, who is assistant curator at the Royal Engineers Museum in Gillingham. She's a trustee of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves Charity, and is talking to me today about her MA thesis, which was entitled Wives, Whores, and Amazons, Women in the Napoleonic Era Armies. Sam, welcome to the Napoleonicist. Well, welcome back, in fact, because folks will remember that you absolutely stormed it with your suggestion about blockades being the most significant naval event or thing that happened um, during the Napoleonic Era. People absolutely went to town on that on social media. Good to have you back. How are you doing?
0: Hello, thanks for having me back. I'm, uh, I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to being able to talk a little bit about more about my comfort field rather than a, a topic I'm not too familiar with.
1: I, I'm always very conscious on this podcast of the need to try and make sure that the women who are doing brilliant research in this field end up getting the platform that they absolutely have a right to. And what I'm often quite irritated by is this kind of perception that certain people have of, oh, women don't do military history. And I'm, I'm enormously tempted to ask a very kind of sarky question about, so Sam, as a woman, why are you studying wars? Because everybody knows that military history is just about men and men studying men. Um, I don't know if you necessarily want to answer that, but um, feel free to tear apart the patriarchy because I do often enough.
0: <laughs> oh, funnily enough, I did. I did used to get that question all the time when I was younger. Um, but it's, it's not like women haven't been doing military history for years. So one of the one of the people who got me into the field was Elizabeth Greenhall with her great work on the Somme in the First World War. And it's uh, it's definitely not new that, <laughs> that women are doing military history. Uh, And it's kind of maybe a bit cliche that the thing I'm talking about today is is women in military history. I don't just do women, but this is one of the topics close to my heart because I very much enjoyed putting the women back into the Napoleonic Wars because they are there. They are there in Legion. They're not necessarily there in as much Legion as the men, but they are definitely there.
1: It's funny. I was talking on another podcast a few weeks back about the study of history and about the need to sort of what I described as put the humanity Back into history and I think in the military context perhaps we're starting to do better on the social side and starting to understand the psychology and some of the social impacts of war but what we don't do as well in my opinion is putting the women particularly into the Napoleonic era and there are examples and exceptions to that we'll no doubt talk about some of the books and some of the work that has been written but this is going to be a really interesting one because I I have always been frustrated by the lack of courage and the sort of fleeting glimpses that we get of women who play an absolutely pivotal role in the course of, of these conflicts. So touching on that, that historiography element, let's start with sort of the history of the history of women in the Penelope era armies, because knowledge about these women isn't mainstream, I think it's fair to say. Their presence is sort of vaguely acknowledged, but it's usually just a really kind of frustrating single line and then people move on. So what's the traditional perception and what's actually been said about their experience?
0: So as you can probably imagine, uh, a lot of the earlier books about the Napoleonic Wars, sort of the, the 19th century text, they don't really comment on them too much. They, as you say, they have sort of a line, they acknowledge they existed, but this also isn't really uh, not to be expected because they are, on the whole, most of the women who are camp followers and battalion wives, They are common soldiers' wives, and the common soldiers themselves don't necessarily get a huge amount of space in these Napoleonic histories of the 19th century. They are operational and tactical and political. Um, And the the French wrote a little bit more about their uh, their continuers, who were the official uh, battalion wives in the French army, uh, but not really hugely until sort of 1913, so 100 years after the period. There's, uh, there's, There's an entire book about them by Raoul Bryce. But uh, even he, he's, uh, he says they're popular in France and he acknowledges how important they are. But he also feels that he needs to call them women of half virtue and, and masculine. Even though there is an entire book dedicated to them, it is still very sort of apologetic about them and it still very much demeans them. Um, so whilst it, it applauds their importance, it demeans them as women and their place in society. And as you can then imagine, sort of in the 1960s, with uh, uh, the sort of populist movement towards personal stories and also the rise in feminist history, there is then a a slight increase in these stories that mainly actually soldier women because they defy gender norms because they're exciting and they go into histories of, of anthologies of extraordinary women and women who break down the patriarchy rather than as women within the military in the Napoleonic Wars. And they are treated as special and extraordinary and they're taken away from the context in which they were or fighting, uh, but with this onset of feminine history, the the camp followers kind of get neglected a bit because they don't challenge the gender norms. They are there because of their husbands, or they are there because they followed the army and followed the men, and they cook and they clean. They're not fighting against the patriarchy, which actually, as I'll talk about later, most soldier women weren't anyway. But they're not defying the gender norm, and therefore they're not this sort of political um, figure for these 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 uh, anthologies. Uh, but a really, really great book that came out in sort of around about 2005 was Thomas Cardozo wrote about um, the conteneurs from the old regime through to 1906, when the end of the role uh, for women came. The, the, the logistic side was formalized into the, the male soldier part of the army. Um, and he, uh, he really did a big study on all of the conteneurs of the Diaz. There hasn't been really as much of a similar British one. Uh, Annabelle Venning wrote a really good book about following the drum about soldiers' wives. But um, apart from that, there hasn't been huge amounts of studies. Uh, since I did the bulk of my research, Charles Esdell has written about Spanish women in the uh, but as that happened, after the bulk of my research, I can't really comment too much about that. But um, one, uh, one that I forgot to mention in the 30s, uh, before all the feminism, a, a little anthology on important women came out and uh, by O.P. Gilbert. And what I find really interesting in this one is that he uh, he couldn't accept that female soldiers could still be feminis- fem- uh, feminine, uh, and he had a huge surprise that the French Fernick sisters could both be successful at making preserves and killing men. And I've always found that very interesting, this, this, uh, this contrast between a fighting woman and a woman, and how they can't be the same thing.
1: Right. <laughs> okay, so his fragile sense of masculinity to one side. Um, I'm also interested in the 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 way in which these women are represented in kind of the popular, not the popular kind of ways of thinking about this period. And I know you and I have been talking over a few days as we've been planning this podcast, and you've been showing me a curious um, French. What's the word for it? It's like a comic book, really, isn't it? It's almost like Marvel, but for the Napoleonic Wars. Um, but the representations of women in that from, certainly from what I've seen, from what you've sent me, are, um, well, they're borderline porn. Well, no, they're not even borderline pornographic. They are pornographic, frankly. So, you know, we're talking about the 1930s and this guy kind of not being able to get his head around the fact that somebody might, a woman might want to join up and fight. In, in this comic book, um, we'll talk about the particulars in a second. You've got this kind of perception that women are just there to start a family and haven't got any kind of notion of anything beyond that. Has much kind of changed in terms of perception? Are we actually kind of waking up to the realities or is there still a huge amount that's left to do there?
0: When it it comes to the camp followers and soldiers' wives in, uh, in popular culture, they tend to be either victims or plunderers. Uh, but uh, Theresa Figuer, my uh, who I will talk a lot more about later, my favourite female French soldier, uh, who is what you were referring to with the um, with the graphic novel. Uh, yeah, so her story, uh, which I, I will touch more on probably later, is is very much one of a, a female soldier fighting in her own right for her own reasons after an initial um, uh, signing up initially for a, for a, for a family member and it this this graphic novel it's a really lovely graphic novel and I love the fact that a female soldier from the Napoleonic Wars has a graphic novel that in itself is lovely and I rushed out to buy it the minute it came out and it came out in 2014 so this is this is very recent this is not some uh, historical representation when women are nothing but sex objects but yes in in scenes where it is um it's found out she's a woman by by uh by the republicans there is her lying half naked on the floor, uh, and then there's scenes of her in a, in a prison hulk later. And just to just to make sure everyone who, even though they've read the graphic novel and know she's a woman, just to make everyone knows she's a woman. She's the only one sat in this prison hulk with just one breast hanging out very delicately. Uh, so there is definitely still this element, I think sometimes of uh, people being sexualized, women being sexualized from this period, which I, I imagine in some contexts is fine. Uh, like in the, in the uh, TV dramatizations of Sharp Teresa, the, the Spanish um, partisan, she is sexy because she's sexy, not because she's got anything hanging out or anything. So there are definitely there are definitely ways to make these women feminine and awesome, but without the classic sexualization that unfortunately some of the popular culture has.
1: Absolutely there's a whole conversation to be had there about representations of women in Sharp, which we will probably <laughs> avoid and perhaps save for another day. I want to set what we're looking at today in a bit of kind of broader context because it's all very well to look at a specifically military environment, but that brings its own kind of unique factors. So when we think about society at large, and obviously class has a role to play in terms of societal expectations, what are the sort of ideals that people are projecting onto women and encouraging women to aspire to during this period?
0: not to fight in wars as a start. Uh, So the the enlightenment had made prevalent the view that women were less intelligent than men and not fit for the same roles in society. Uh, In uh, France, 80 to 85% of late 18th century women were peasants working in the fields um, and women all over Europe worked in bakeries, inns, taverns uh, and the clothing industries if they were sort of the working lower classes. I focus particularly on France there because a lot of what I'm going to be saying today will focus on on French women. Um, women, according to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's widely uh, widely published works, uh, had a moral influence in society as a mother, and it was uh, this was a, an ideal taken on by the Jacobins during the French Revolution. The moral degradation of society could be fixed by mothers instructing children to pay virtuously. Uh, and therefore, from the very start of the revolution, the Jacobins had sort of sidelined women into this role in their their minds. The French Revolution, however, had rallied the common people into action uh, and it had raised the issues of women's rights, whether (laughs) whether the people in charge of the revolution wanted it to or not. Women were excluded from the fancy clubs where the large political discussions held, but in the markets and the streets of Paris, the women not only rallied, but they led. In the October-March of 1789, the the women in the uh, in the market the angry women in the market rallied uh, a huge huge number of themselves and they stormed uh, the king's palace because they had not only were already angry over food prices but they'd heard the king had stamped on a tricolor cockade and in uh, in the on the 28th of August 1789 the National Convention dropped the famous Declaration of the Rights of Man seeking to equalize the rights of the active citizen. So what's important here um, why this is relevant is because men who paid taxes were active citizens, men who owned land were active citizens, men in the military were active citizens, but women were not. Women were passive citizens, but many many women in Paris particularly uh, believed that because they had helped start the revolution, they had continued the revolution, they had fought, they had uh, helped drag the king back to, to Paris after he fled, They were worried. They thought they needed to be able to bear arms in order to defend themselves. They didn't think they were going to be safe. But also, this was very much hijacked by uh, women who thought they could try and get some rights. And women who could bear arms would become an active citizen because men in the military were active citizens. So to to the newly formed uh national convention it was more than just a case of letting women have guns it was whether the women having guns would then be an active citizen and so women were barred from being in the army and this is the it was a standard is that i say that as if it's some kind of surprise but obviously it's not a standard for women to be in the army at that time but it's also wider within the within the country of france women are being barred from taking up arms because they are worried that they will become active citizens if they do this. So On one side, we get the Society of the Revolutionary Republican Women asking for the right to bear arms and defend Paris. And therefore, for them, it's about becoming active citizens. They have an ulterior motive. And on the other side, we're going to be getting female soldiers who have gone to fight for reasons we'll we'll go on to uh, in a moment, who are then getting sent home because of the fears in Paris about these political women who aren't even in the front line anyway.
1: That sounds really quite messy Um, and what's also quite sad is how long these kind of perceptions continue, um, particularly obviously across Ancien regime Europe into kind of 19th century Europe but I mean in France they're still talking about public and private spheres and how men have a duty to occupy the public and women should focus on the private that, that lasts all the way up into the 1920s, 30s, even arguably into the 40s. So, I mean, this has a a long legacy, Um, two fingers to the enlightenment, frankly, for the suggestion that women are less intelligent than men. Um, There are a few groups that you cover in your research. And I want to start with the one that I think listeners are perhaps most likely to know about, which is the camp followers because we just kind of have this thing, uh, perhaps I'm kind of being too Anglo-centric in, in my perception there, but we know about count followers and their roles in, in helping the kind of the internal economy of the regiment. So who were these women? First of all, what do we know about their origins and their lives before they joined the army?
0: Mm, well, <laughs> there is no easy answer to that because there is no clear documentation really for most most camp followers because as uh, <laughs> as you can predict most mo- mo- someone who is an unofficial camp follower isn't going to have a record even even official official battalion wives don't really hold a record of them with the british army with the french army there are there are records of uh, the continuers uh, also sometimes known as the vendiers, who were the official battalion wives who we will talk about in a minute but with um with unofficial camp followers, there's there's two sorts of main types. There's the daughters of soldiers who were either already um, their 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 mum and the family were already official battalion wives going with them, and therefore they married the people around. And then there's also women who were just picked up in, in Spain and France, um, and then obviously on the and in, in the French I armies, mean, they also had uh, unofficial camp followers who were able to pick up around. This is definitely it's very important, I think, for for people to recognize that when the war in the peninsula was happening France are the bad guy but it's not like Spanish women are only going off with the British people they're not just going off with the hero Brits they're also going off with the French army there are hordes of Spanish women who are either falling in love with French men or they're following the French army because there are opportunities to, to try and marry someone or to get food or to make money off of them or to haul themselves out, however is best to survive.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. And of course, there's there's a huge backlash eventually. Um, you kind of see this with the whole Afrancistado movement. That was an attempt at a Spanish accent. Apologies, that was appalling. Um, but that that whole kind of movement receives a a huge backlash, initially from sort of the guerrillas, but then in time just kind of more generally in Spain as as the French are are pushed back. So it's a really important point that you make. But equally, as you said, a lot of your work is kind of French-orientated. So when you have these armies moving into Central Europe and then on into Eastern Europe, you must see the same kinds of things. Is there a kind of resistance or a kind of a hierarchy based on nationality that you see within these armies, because there's a lot of, there's this embryonic nationalism for a start. There's a lot of um, kind of snobbish tendencies to look down their noses at other nations. You see this in the British army where they automatically think they're better than the French. In the French army, I'm thinking here of Michael Hughes's work in Forging Napoleon's Grand Armée, he talks about this kind of culture of sexual conquest being conflated with a culture of conquest. And that kind of sense of you've got French people and you've got others and others, you can kind of do what you like with them, inverted commas. So do you see those attitudes played out when in terms of the interactions that these women have when they join uh, the French army and they're not French themselves or do we just not have the records for that? Or is there some, is it a case that actually for a soldier they fall in love with who they fall in love with and they couldn't really give a monkeys about all of these other things at play.
0: On a wider scale I can't comment purely based on on lack of evidence but there is one, um, one case I think here that would go nicely with this question and that is uh, a continuere called Florencia and she was Spanish uh, and to give a, a brief uh, introduction to what a continuere is the continier is a highly sought after official position with the French army. There are only about uh, three or four per battalion. They have official licenses to plunder, pillage, sell their goods to the men. They're highly respected within the within the troops. Uh, they make a lot of money. They, um, they're trusted, usually. They're highly respected from all ranks, all the way from the bottom to the generals. And uh, this woman, Florencia, this woman wasn't even officially married to her French soldier. They just had some kind of quasi. We've been together for a couple of years. We are married. She's applied to be a, a continuer, um, and in uh, I can't remember which battle it is, but she is out in the front lines, and she is trying to stop some of her wares. But also, she has a gun and she's helping to sort of shoot some of the enemy. And she get her she gets her thumb shot, and she faints through blood loss and shock. And um, one of the French soldiers who isn't her husband, the, her husband is nowhere in this context, he is somewhere else in the regiment fighting the battle, she's off on her own, doing her own thing as a conteneur. Um, and this other soldier who sees her as a friend, um, he sees her faint and he wants to help her, but he's shot in the leg and he can't get there in time. And another, another soldier that he doesn't recognize, He is someone in his regiment, but he's not friends with him. instantly just picks her up and carries her back to the line. and and she's this Spanish woman who's not even technically legally married to someone in the regiment.
1: It's interesting how, you know, we as historians can come up with all of these theories and then actually you deal with the gritty reality, and this is why I love that gritty reality, and it just kind of blows all of these perceptions that we create apart. Um, So you talk about the continuers and what they do. What else do we know about women who are attached to these units and I'm thinking particularly about battalion wives here.
0: Mm, so with the British, with the British they are pretty much exactly what you are going to stereotypically believe they are there for. So uh, about six wives per battalion are allowed to go abroad with the unit and they are there to cook, to clean and to sew. That is that is their role. Uh, And this is what I find. And this is where I think why a lot of British perceptions of women in the peninsula have sort of slipped a bit to them being not important or to forgetting they're there because they did such mundane tasks as that. And then you compare it to the French model where they are these continuers. They have this official role, but it's so much more than that. They aren't just cooking. They aren't just cleaning, they aren't just sewing and they aren't just selling. They aren't just going to plunder and find items to sell to everyone. They are also um, bankers like sort of quasi-bankers, not official bankers. You've got records of officers and men borrowing money off of them, but also before battles, giving them their money to look after. And then they kind of become their sort of quasi-heir as well. If the officer or the soldier dies in battle, then their heir gets to keep the money, so then they profit. And then if they survive, obviously, they give it back because so they were just looking after it. And I find this very, very um, interesting because the British army, I, I don't think... The officers and men would even trust the soldiers' wives with their kind of like, I don't know, spoons, let alone, let alone their money.
1: Yeah, the British um, side is really interesting because it's quite, when you do get references to them, it's quite clear that the without the battalion wives, the battalion wives basically do what the hell they want and it annoys the hell out of Wellington. Um, so there's a, a woman called Bridget Skiddy. I believe she's um, an Irish woman. And Wellington issues an order that the battalion wives aren't allowed to, be, to march in advance of the army's line of march. Um, I think they're on a retreat, actually, because there's an issue with the fact that the women head out early. They hit the campsite. They scour the local um, landscape for food, particularly bread. And the idea is that they're making sure that their men have got something to eat when they come in from the day's march or the day's skirmish or whatever it might be. And so a provost marshal is told, look, you need to do something about this. And so he lies in wait and he shoots one of the battalion mules. He gets the ultimate verbal battering from this woman. Um, and the next day, she just carries on as normal because they have this kind of sense of, of kind of commitment to their spouse. and. It is, as you say, kind of tied up with those gender tropes that we associate these women with, but they are absolutely vital because they're helping to make sure that everybody gets something to eat. And yes, it creates a headache for Wellington, but Wellington's got that headache anyway, because he can't supply his men well enough. Um, but yeah, they're, they're crucial. I want to tap into the whole the daily life element here what do these women kind of see and experience and how much danger are they in working within a war zone i mean you've, you've mentioned about the woman who gets her thumb shut off is that kind of unusual you've also got this fact that they're in an environment where it's all men and you know all of the the dangers that come with that so what what are their lives like day to day
0: Mm, So Biddy, uh, Biddy Skiddy actually is a nice way in because she is, she's one of my little heroes Um, because she, she was renowned for being able to procure food for her husband Dan, even in the hardest of times. But also she has one of the kind of, it's a very symbolic story, I think. Um, She noticed that her husband was flagging. Uh, He, in the peninsula, he couldn't go on. He absolutely could not go on. And she said, how about I carry your pack for you? Obviously, and in more of a uh, 1800s Victorian, uh, sorry, a financial war um, accent. And he said, no, I will, get, I, will, I will get done for desertion. I will get tried for desertion if you take your And she said, I will take you. And she took him with his pack attached and just carried him and his pack in order to keep him surviving. And <laughs> so obviously to, to the rest of the unit, her contribution was probably minimal, minimal. but to Dan, she saved his life. If he'd fallen behind, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have survived. Uh, so, that is one of, the, one of the best stories I find of uh, British soldiers' wives in the peninsula. But, more, more general experiences, it's um, with the British Army, there are definitely stories of en on, on masse, the, the camp followers tend to uh, be seen as getting in the way. And there are, uh, there are stories of them struggling to get across rivers and the rest of the army just not wanting to help. Um, uh, they're often seen as a burden and impeding the speed of the army. For example, George Bell classed them as uh, a multitude of soldiers' wives stuck to the army like bricks, and averse to all military discipline. They impeded our progress at times very much but George Bell is the exact man who I learned about Biddy Skiddy from, and he thought that she was the best woman alive. So it's very much individual women are are getting great reputations for their individual acts towards husbands. The unofficial ones are just uh, swarms, apparently. Uh, And a lot of women, quite I, I might be prejudiced here, but they have a reputation for drunkenness, and I kind of understand why. If you're just... If you're out in a combat zone and you are not an official wife and you have very few rations and you're getting stuck in rivers and no one's helping you and you've had to give birth by the roadside and no one's helped you and the army army's marched on, wouldn't you want to reprieve? It's, it's not like the soldiers weren't also getting in trouble for occasional drunkenness either. It's not like this was a, a solely female vice and the women are hoarding alcohol up the skirts and just <laughs> denying the men. Um, but one, uh, one drunk wife, who could not be encouraged to move when the army was moving, was just left in the church she was hiding in. And then apparently the French threw her out the bell tower. Uh, <laughs> not, quite, not, quite, um, not quite the happy ending for her there. Uh, but also another, another huge theme with British wives in particular is thundering. And this happened on both sides, but a key, a key thing, I think, is that with the French, the Quantiniers, when they plundered, were plundering to sell back to the troops, so it benefited the troops. So their plundering wasn't plundering. Plundering is only plundering in the French's eyes uh, if it's not going back to them, otherwise, it's just procurement. Uh, but the British women, when plundering, weren't always even safe from their own side. Uh, there's, a, there's a story of a Portuguese camp follower who was shot by an outraged British soldier, and he was outraged because she was trying to finish off a French soldier to rob him. So she was trying to kill a member of the enemy. And yet the British still killed her because she was going to kill a member of the enemy who they'd already injured in the battle. <laughs> it makes very little
1: sense. Well, there's a complex moral dynamic, dynamic going on there, isn't there? Which is partly about um, once you've rendered somebody incapable of fighting, do you leave them? Um, but that, yeah, there's, there's a whole thing there. It's interesting what you say about the, the drunkenness thing. The men are absolutely appalling when it comes to drunkenness. I'm not being funny. The number of trials i come across where men are effectively drunk and disorderly is huge. They're giving these people booze as part of their daily ration. Alcoholism is absolutely rife. In fact, in Gibraltar, they have an absolute nightmare trying to kind of clamp down on sales of um, booze to, to soldiers. So the irony of kind of perceiving these women as oh they're all drunken all the time well so are you get a grip um but the the India comparison is kind of interesting as well when it comes to people going oh all these women getting in the way because the armies in in India were when it came to camp followers were about three or four or five times the size when it came to moving actually much smaller forces so it's interesting you get all of these kind of these aspersions attached to them that just don't bear out in reality.
0: Yes, there are, there are, there are on the other side, though, also the occasional story of uh, people, soldiers helping the women. So there are also, um, I can't recall when it was, but a group of drunken women in uh, one town, the, um, a cavalry officer sent the cavalry back to save them. So it's not it's it's not ever with any kind of history. It's never, ever a flat out across the board. We hate all women, because as I've already said, it's not that the British army hated all women that were with them. They got annoyed at the unofficial women, the official women were there and the official women were allowed to be there and therefore they kind of they definitely didn't have this kind of great status. But they didn't have a disdain, and I find that quite sad. That that's the way to view it. That they weren't they weren't viewed with disdain. Whereas in the French army, they were actually quite revered. The official women, the continiers, were were revered so much that uh, in Prussian Poland, um, one officer went fishing in a captured town one day, and instead of catching fish, he found a body, and they um, carried on pulling them up, and there were 38 bodies. There were 37 French soldiers and one continuer, And in punishment to the town, the French hanged 38 members of that town. He hanged in retribution a member of the town for every single soldier and a continuer. And whilst that's not a nice story at all, I I can't, if if there was a British comparison, I can't see the British taking out a retribution on on a fallen soldier's wife. The only the only ones I could see them possibly seeking retribution for uh, are officers wives which I haven't actually touched on at all yet because they are they're sort of living a very different life um the most famous of which like yeah I can never pronounce her name Joanna Smith um soldiers uh, soldiers and officers every time she wanted to get off her horse were running to help her down and sort of basically laying their cloaks in front of her chivalrously whereas you've got women years before in the retreat to Karuna who are dying by the roadside, giving birth on their own. French soldiers are finding dead British women lying by the roadside uh, in one really horrible, harrowing account. I'm I'm sorry, everyone, but they they find this dead woman with her screaming newborn baby just lying there. She just gave birth on her own, died in the freezing cold, and this poor baby is just there.
1: Yeah, if you want an indication of how badly the... British treat the unofficial um, battalion wise i.e. the women who aren't officially on the battalion strength. Um, at the end of the Peninsular war, when they are marching the battalions to ports to embark them for either service in the, the war of 1812 or to return to England, part of the reason you see a huge uptick in desertion, and we're talking figures that the British army hasn't seen at any point in the Peninsular war, more than sort of double, perhaps even triple their, their standard desertion rates. The reason for that is because the British army refuses to take back the unofficial battalion wives. And so you see a kind of movement amongst some of the soldiers where they think, to hell with this. And they run off with their, their, um, their spouses. And as you say, it, there's, there's a very different kind of culture here. Let's, uh, let's stay with the battalions, the officers' wives, for a second, you mentioned Joanna Smith. I, she's 15 on that horrible, horrible night um, at the Siege of Bannerhof, where she meets Harry Smith and is it Jonathan Leach or John Kincaid? I forget. I think it's Kincaid. Um, and they both basically try to, to woo her. So I I always feel quite uneasy about the fact, and I know that's modern sensibilities and different times and different kind of standards, but I always feel quite uneasy about the fact that she's a teenager um, when she gets, inverted commas, swept off her feet, if indeed that is how it happened. Um, But there was genuine affection there. So so tell us more about the, the experience of officers' wives and you know, the way in which that kind of differed, aside from the obvious thing about affluence?
0: The officers' wives are an odd one, because they're they're always treated with a, a huge amount more respect because of the British class system than the the, the, the other battalion wives. But in, um, in May 1813, Major Augustus Fraser asked, what would these ladies do? And his question is not unfounded, because the answer essentially is nothing. <laughs> don't do the cooking they don't do the cleaning they don't do the sewing they don't go plundering to feed their husbands because they don't need to and if anything uh, a lot of the time they were also just their luggage uh would get in the way um however i know that sounds very very judgmental of me but there are there are instances where uh some notable women did ride out into the battlefield with their husbands. So, George Bell records the wife of Colonel Delbiac riding out at Salamanca. Uh, apparently, the delicate and beautiful wife of Colonel Delbiac braved the dangers and privations of two campaigns with the fortitude and patience of her sex. In the Battle of Salamanca, forgetful of herself, forgetful, she uh, clearly was uh, forgetting how to be a woman, because women don't fight, remember everybody, supported by strong affection for her gallant knight. <laughs> This man, who is her protector, even though she has chosen to go over to uh, to the peninsula with him, uh, exposing herself to imminent peril. There was no man present that day fighting the battles of his country. I did not fight with more than double enthusiasm, seeing that fair lady in such danger on the battlefield. So in in her case, she inspired the the men around her. um, But obviously, according to Val, she uh, she didn't necessarily do much in her own right. She forgot herself got to be a woman uh, and inspired the men around her when in reality she probably actually <laughs> she wouldn't just be riding around the battlefield doing nothing i can imagine she probably actually would have got up uh hit up a rifle and done something useful
1: i'm not yeah. sure on this podcast we've ever had a historical burn but i i think we've just had that ladies and gentlemen i don't know how many episodes we're in now 125 130 um but i'm not sure any of uh the people that we've cited have ever been torn apart in quite such fashion. But sorry, I interrupted you, Sam. Carry on. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. it's surprisingly affordable too connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month that's betterhelp h e l p
0: oh no i was just going to i was just going to bring up another lady who uh, who also rode into battle which is again these women, these, these officers' wives riding into battle is not something that's sort of commonly commonly known about. I'm sure a couple of your listeners probably do because they like the Napoleonic Wars and study it a bit. But uh, Charlotte, Lady Charlotte Harley rode with her husband into battle throughout the entire Peninsula and Waterloo campaigns. Um, and the, the wife of Major John James actively joined her husband's cavalry charges and was nearly taken prisoner. And she was only saved because she pulled out a pistol in her own defense, not because any soldier came to save her. These women weren't in great number. They didn't swoop into the battlefield and save the day at any point. But they still had stories that are just sort of universally neglected.
1: So let's stay with this kind of this idea of battalion wise. How does this vary across armies of other nationalities? Because we've talked quite a bit here about the British example. What's the story with, with the French system and with other European systems, if we know about those?
0: So as I've, uh, as I've already touched upon, the, the French concierge system was incredibly effective. It fully integrated these official wives as merchants, uh, which it kind of recognised their significance. It recognised that, that having women with the battalion could be useful, but it also meant it freed up men to to not be focusing on that so with the old with the ancient regime um there were such a thing they were called vivandiers at the time and they were always married to a um i don't know how to pronounce the male version (laughs) it's basically vivandier without an e on the end so vivande so there was always a a, a female vivandier could not be one in her own right she always had to be married to a male version and then with the first republic regulations changed and any official battalion wife could apply to become a conteneur and this gave women sort of a, a modicum of independence uh, and also with the with the Ancien regime the, the, the Vivandiers conteneurs they they tended to not leave the baggage trade they were more merchants outside of a battle but as soon as they were permitted their own independence and this, this probably also coincide with the patriotism of, of the First Republic and defending the revolution, but Contineers were suddenly running onto the battlefields as well, and part of it was definitely a, a sense of uh, um, business acumen. They, they wanted to run out into the field and sell brandy to, to men who needed courage, men who were a bit scared, but it wasn't always that because they didn't always sell the brandy. Sometimes they gave it away for free, and sometimes they were shouting at the men, I'll pay for it tomorrow, pay for it tomorrow, knowing full well that many of these men may not be alive to, to pay for it tomorrow. So there's definitely there an element of independence and definitely there an element of patriotism that probably developed uh, over time until uh, in the peninsula, they might not necessarily have been quite so, quite so fighting for the Republic, um, but they were definitely definitely more independent. Uh, and as a soleo, the can- continuers were even bankers, but another really, really key part of being a continuere was that the, the very successful ones had tents, they had tents and they created a social hub for the soldiers, it's something that you definitely don't see in the British army at all. And I really, really cannot be stressed enough how, how important that, that little social centre, because these continuers would have tents. In an army where the rest of the soldiers didn't necessarily have tents and bivouacs, and this would be a a warm, dry place with food that soldiers could buy and brandy that soldiers could buy uh, in a wet environment, in a cold environment, it would have just a huge, huge amount, huge amount for
1: morale. I want to move on to a topic here that I know is going to particularly fascinate our listeners, not least because we tend not to talk about this very much, but your research has uncovered details about women actually serving in the ranks, i.e., fighting they are soldiers so do we have any evidence of women being actively recruited into the army or is we are we still kind of within the France you mentioned about you know concerns about women in Paris and them pushing for rights so I'm guessing not in the French system but in other nations do we see women being called upon to fight in some form?
0: So the soldier women are very, very close to my heart, uh, particularly the French ones, the Femme Soldats. But first, first of all, I'm going to quickly, quickly mention the British Army, because that is probably (laughs) the quickest to talk about, because fundamentally, as you can imagine, the British Army do not want women to dress up as men and to fight for them. There was a woman called Sarah Roberts who served... Uh, during not only the uh, American War of Independence, but also in the 1790s. And she was injured, I think, in um, in the early 1800s in the Flanders' campaign. And as soon as they found out she was a woman, they kicked her out. So she was in the British Army for 22 years, and she was kicked out without a single pension. So having been kicked out, she was then... Completely denied any kind of pension and just completely just kicked out straight away with with no acknowledgement of her 22 years service. This is definitely not a rarity for the British Army. So there's only there are very very few recorded um, in the even even before the Napoleonic Wars in the entirety of the, the 18th century. There were a couple of others. A woman named Phoebe Hessel who signed up because she wanted to follow her her husband at the time and then and remarried and so usually um british the british women supposedly tended to go because of love because of her husband um, and it's not just british women in the british army that get kicked out either joanna Stain was serving in the king german legion she was injured in portugal and she was sent home after 15 years of service um, every british woman that was found was sent home the only woman that was that, has, that there's recorded evidence of, uh, who fought for Britain and was not allowed, was not made to go home, was a French woman. Her, her name was Madame de Benes and she was in the Damas legion, so it was a French legion that then fought, a French royalist legion, that then fought under the flag. She was kind of a safe thing because she wasn't British, she was the kind of weird, weird anomaly in the, the French legion, um, so therefore it didn't really, suppose it seems it didn't really matter to the British.
1: That's pretty piss and particularly considering the first lady that you mentioned was injured. And so therefore, and I'm not, don't quote me on this because I'm not good on the Chelsea pension records, but if you're wounded and it affects your day-to-day life, you, the men, were entitled to Chelsea pensions, whether as in pensioners or out pensioners. So that's, I, I can't say I'm surprised, but that is pretty appalling.
0: Yes, but the thing I find very interesting is that with the longevity of these um, Sarah Roberts services, in particular, the 22 years of service, I find it very hard to believe that the men around her and her commanding officer didn't know. So I, I have no evidence for this. All I can go by is the fact that I'm a woman and I know that I would not be able to hide. The things that make me a woman from a group of men for 22 years in a scenario where you have very little privacy, even bathing, going to the latrine, um, certain monthly cycle issues. I do not believe that they didn't know, and I just I reckon that to the the commanding officer in this case, it was this soldier is good at being a soldier, and then suddenly she's injured, and other people above them find out, and he's like, oh, oh no, I never knew. I promise, I never knew
1: complete mystery to me but I completely agree with you but also it, it taps into something that we were talking about or, or touching on earlier about you know for the average individual in the ranks do they really care about some of these things we we're talking about nationality and questions about nationality and when it comes to fighting and this is where Ed Koss's work comes into play when he talks about kind of primary group cohesion and individuals mess groups sitting down and trusting one another if she's prepared to fight as hard as every other Bloke in that mess group, they don't care. She's got her back, so they've got their. She, they've got her back. So I wouldn't be surprised if you're absolutely right on that. What about the French example?
0: So France, France is very interesting because in the uh, in the French archives there is documentary evidence of four definite female soldiers. But as of April 1793, when a decree was released to send all women home who, who were following the army, who were either unofficial camp followers or female soldiers, female soldiers were specifically mentioned in this decree. That's how prolific they were. They estimated about 300 women were fighting for the, for the, the first republic in 1793, which is a huge amount considering they're not permitted. This isn't the this isn't case of women are being encouraged to go to the front and all look, 300 of them have decided to go. This is in a society where women are actively not allowed into the army. And they're not just going and fighting alongside the men as women, as continuers. Some of them are going as women in a uniform and outright saying, I'm a woman and I put on this uniform. But a lot of them are also going pretending to be men and being found out. And there are, there are three, three kind of main reasons uh, why these women are going. One is very predictably love, and by love I don't always necessarily mean oh my husband, my sweetheart. Sometimes it's a brother or a father. It is it is a, an important male in their life. So it's definitely not just romantic love. Sometimes it is familial love as well. There is poverty because three meals a day um, and and a, a, a really well paid job. Is just as enticing to a poor woman as it is to a poor man, just because it's not a, an acceptable path for them or a legitimate path for them, doesn't mean there aren't a few women. Again, this is a very small minority, but for those women who do decide that it's worth trying—that is—that is that it is a very valid path for them to try and follow. And the other is freedom. And for some of those people, it was freedom from a restricted life, um, and for some of them, it was freedom from execution. So. One of my, one of my favorite people ever, not just favorite female soldier, favorite people ever, is a woman named Teresa Figa and she she sort of uh, she covers two of these. she originally went to war for the Royalists and she went to war because her uncle was a captain in the artillery for the Royalist army. and when um, when their unit got attacked, she got slightly injured, not drastically but slightly injured and the Republican army were taking her captive and they were going to execute her as a revolutionary when she said, whoa, I'm a woman. (laughs) I'm I'm gonna save myself here. Look at me, I'm a woman. Please don't kill me. I'm here because I was fighting with my uncle. I didn't have a huge amount of choice in this. I don't actually really believe in what I'm fighting for. I'm doing it to survive. And the commanding officer of the Republicans thought she was a hilarious novelty. So he took her on as a woman, Uh, not as a woman so he knew she was a woman but he encouraged her to pretend to be a man still and a few uh, a few months in he had a angry townsfolk person bring his daughter in and say that soldier raped my daughter and now she is pregnant and the the colonel the republican colonel had a great field day going oh ha, ha ha i could i can promise you this is absolutely impossible that soldier did not rape your daughter and the daughters go you you doubt me you doubt my virtue and so they they summoned in a soldier which was there is a figure under under her male name uh, and they said go on prove prove why you couldn't have molested this 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 um this woman and so she just takes her uniform off and goes look, i've got boobs <laughs> no man it is impossible for me to have put your daughter pregnant and from that moment on she just served sort of as, a, as an open woman and it's, it's very bizarre because at the time in, in 1793 when the decree sent women home a lot of units did send their women home but a lot of unit commanders also didn't because it was it was not it was not allowed for them to keep them but they decided that that woman fought as well as the man next to them and there was no point in sending a good soldier home some of them, yes, yeah, some of them sent them home. It, it's, not, it's not like there was a universal love of all these female soldiers, but a lot of them didn't send them home. So in this context, you're not allowed to be a female soldier, and yet Theresa Figuer was not only kept on, but every, every now and then she, um, she would retire, and then she'd get re-enlisted into another regiment. It was always this re-enlistment of her. Uh, and at Toulon, she, she served with, uh, with Napoleon and really didn't like him. She thought he was uh, a bit of a knob. Which I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, Zach's laughing, but I'm a bit sad because I'm an Napoleon fan. <laughs> and this is um, true. A few, <laughs> but one of my, one of my favorite Teresa Figure stories is so she is this incredibly badass woman. She fights in a lot of battles. She saves a French commander in one of them. She has horses shot from underneath her twice. And then the one story in her memoir that she says really sticks out to her and haunted her sleep for a couple of years was this young Russian guy that she killed. And she killed him because as she was riding towards him, he shot at her. And it wasn't that he shot at her that she killed him. She killed him because the shot grazed the tiger skin on her dragoon helmet and she was Frieza wasn't the, uh, the, the only female soldier to distinguish herself in the wars. At Jumath uh, in Belgium, 1792, Felicity Ferning, single-handedly rescued a French wounded officer, I was a sister on the other side of the battlefield, killed two Hungarian grenadiers and captured the commander of an enemy battalion. In 1807, uh, a woman called Madame Ponset, I don't know her first name, killed a Russian captain and rescued a leaderless cavalry unit. So she rescued the leaderless cavalry unit. So she rescued it and took it over and got it back to the rest of the ships. Um, in the same year, she was shot under the right armpit and having bound it up, she continued to save six prisoners, six prisoners by herself. At Antwerp, uh, a woman named Mathis uh, seized an Austrian Imperial Eagle and a woman named simply as Degressin returned from the war with only one ear scars on her face and thighs and so uh this implies either she was constantly in the middle of the action or was very bad at doing bullets so the the femme soldats fought hard they were they were there for a reason if they weren't good soldiers if they didn't fight hard they would have been sent home or married off to someone and become a, a soldier's wife i don't have a huge amount of stories from other nationalities but they are there so um one of the most famous spanish women uh, Agostina Zaragoza, she was at the siege of Zaragoza. She was carrying ammunition to the Spanish artillery when all of them were killed by, um, by one by one explosion. And so she, as the, the wall breached and the French started to come through, she fired the cannon that had already been loaded and killed all of the French in one go. And that bought the Spanish time to, to hold back from the French. And she became a, a national hero as well as just a local hero. She was given a, a rank in the Spanish Army. But what was very interesting, I found, with her, is that when she went aboard a naval ship, a British naval ship, uh, for dinner, they acknowledged her military rank. So the British acknowledged their own women. Uh, any British woman in the army gets sent home in disgrace as an abomination with, with no pension um, and no pay. But foreign women are respected versus their rank and when Teresa Fieger got captured, Teresa Fieger got captured by the British, she got captured by the British, um, I think in the peninsula actually and originally uh, she was made to address so they refused to acknowledge that she was a soldier in that sense but they did eventually acknowledge she was a soldier but then when she got back to the UK she wasn't put on a prison halt soldiers. she was um, Imprisoned in well, sort of under house arrest in Portsmouth, and she raised rabbits. So bit, of odd, bit of an odd, imprisonment. And then she was repatriated in, in 1814. But the British um, definitely respected Agustina Zaragoza, which I find I find very strange. And another really interesting, for an example, is Nadezhda Dorova with the Russian army. Now she she went to war. Uh, in her memoir, she very openly says it's because. She wanted to live a freer life. She was the daughter of a major. She'd grown up, surrounded by the military. She knew how to ride. She knew how to shoot. She married a man, had a kid, and decided this life isn't for me and just packed up and signed up as a boy. And she, interestingly, does mention in her memoirs that she found it very, very hard to cover up being a woman because the fashion for the Russian men in her particular unit was to have big, bushy moustaches, and she naturally couldn't, couldn't grow that. She got, I think she got a transfer somewhere else um, and then eventually the rumours had been going around the army that there was a female soldier in the ranks and the Tsar the found out and he summoned her to the palace and he was so amused by her that he sent her back as an official as an official female soldier but gave her the nickname Alexandrov as a
1: badge of honour. So you were talking about um, the French army and you touched on Napoleon. Napoleon, he's normal... I will bash Napoleon relentlessly, but what I will say is that he was very good at motivating his men and part of the way in which he achieved that motivation was through that interpersonal kind of relationship and that willingness to rub shoulders and and tug people's ears and demonstrate that affection and and forge those personal links. And that's part of why he was adored by so many of his troops. Do we have any stories of things like the Legion d'Honneur being handed to women? Because In one sense, you know, these you've you've said yourself, you've got women rallying regiments, you've got women taking Austrian standards. These are heroic acts that if any man were responsible, they would be appearing before a general or a marshal or the emperor himself and receiving some kind of honour. So how does Napoleon deal with the fact that you've got a soldier here who is worthy of the honour, but at the same same time, she's a woman. And so therefore kind of subverts the whole kind of gender norms of this period
0: so I've um I've always found it very very hard to marry up Napoleon's very very obvious misogyny in other areas with his attitude to women in the army because there are no records of him sending a woman home what there are records of is him kind of quasi-supporting certain individuals. So there, I cannot recall her, her name, but there was a woman on parade once he found, uh, when he was inspecting the troops, there was a woman there, and he inquired with the the commanding officer, this woman, why is there a woman here? What has she done? And after hearing some stories about her, he did give her the, the legion donor off his breast, as he likes to do prolific other people. Uh, also, Theresa Figa, um, to bang on about my hero again, in um, in Egypt, so one thing that the, the female soldiers definitely did get a little bit of the predictable um, sexual harassment, definitely. And Teresa Figo got it relatively regularly, and at one point, her um, her colonel asked her if he'd be her, if she'd be his mistress, and she got very very upset. But in Egypt, she got it a lot. Uh, I don't know what the difference was between them being in Egypt and being in the other. In the other combat zones, maybe it was just the, the particular group of men she was with, and she had to get personal written protection from Napoleon, this man that she'd hated years before. They'd had, you know, they didn't get on when they met at Toulon. Um, but suddenly in Egypt, he was he was writing letters of personal protection. Do not do not harass Teresa Figa or my wrath will be on you. So it, it's just it's just always been very hard to marry up his misogyny how he doesn't want women in politics. He doesn't, he thought that, that women messed up the Anshim Régime. He didn't want Josephine to mess in politics. And yet he's actively, he's not actively recruiting women for his army. That would, that would be ludicrous. But he is definitely allowing these women to exist in his army. And there's definitely the argument that it was all for propaganda. He is obviously a very, very, very good man at, at uh, identifying propaganda. But also is it? because in a world where you don't want women signing up, why would you be promoting women in the army? The the purpose for that kind of tool would have been in 1793. Save the Republic from the enemies around us, not so much in the empire when he doesn't want women to be there.
1: Absolutely. A man full of contradictions was Napoleon, in in my view, and and there's another one, Um, and it's it's a fascinating one. I, I want to end by just kind of thinking about what the future holds, because this has been fascinating, and I'm hoping that occasionally I, I bring guests on and we talk about you know what where does this, this the study of this Napoleonic era need to go in the future? And it strikes me that this is one of those where we need to know more or, or we should in at least endeavor to try and learn more. So what do you think the future holds for understanding firstly of these women and their experiences, but also kind of their impact? Do you think there's more? Substantially be discovered out there. I'm very conscious, and I'm sorry to bang on about crime and punishment again, but I'm conscious that I have two women of the nearly nine and a half thousand trials that I've transcribed. And they're both described as because the court martial registers list the ranks. Their rank is quite simply wife of, which tells you everything that you need to know about um, how. The British Army kind of viewed these these women and their social status. They are the wife of a particular private, uh, almost as if they're you know the husband's the private's property. Um, so there there are other places that we could go in search of perhaps information about these women. So what are your thoughts on what else might be discovered, how it might be discovered, and the the scope for more research in this area? So
0: the biggest challenge when I was trying to research this is that references to women, particularly in diaries and archival material, aren't catalogued as having references to women. So you have to read through an entire memoir and then maybe find a line or two about them. So I, I would have to go through, I'd have to buy or just find various memoirs, skim through them and hope for the best. And I think that, unfortunately, is how any future stories are going to continue to be found. Um, so I'm, I'm really hoping that someone somewhere in their attic, I mean, I'm, I'm also an archivist, so this is my general hope in life all the time, that someone's going to open their attic and find a fun new Napoleonic personal diary. And unfortunately for, for British women uh, in particular, that's where the new, the new stories are going to come from. The French archives, the French military archives, do have a fantastic set of uh, official records of the continuers and of the female soldiers and i neither have the linguistic skills the time or the money to go through all of them so if so, <laughs> anyone who is fluent in french i want to go and read through them and uh, write a book on all these women for me that'd be great
1: there you go there's a phd in prospect right there sam this has been fascinating thank you so much for your time today remind people how they can kind of stay in touch with your work and perhaps just kind of say a little bit about your your day job if you will at the Royal Engineers Museum and how people can kind of find out a bit more about the museum and what you actually do if you will day to day
0: of course so you can find me on twitter at um at s underscore jolly and my surname is j-o-l-l-e-y so you can also find me at the Royal Engineers Museum or I'm the assistant curator we have a really really great set of um, Napoleonic, so we're the home of the famous Waterloo map, which was hurriedly put together through um, lots of scraps of existing sketches of the Waterloo area. And in the days before the battle, um, it was hastily put together and sent to Wellington. As it is, it was allegedly also found on the body of um, the unconscious poor Delancey before he died. We have the letters of Fletcher before um, the, during the building of the lines of Torres Fedris. We have beautiful, beautiful bridge drawings from the peninsula by various Royal Engineer officers. Our archive has just recently reopened after a huge redevelopment, so please do do get in touch and we can get you booked in and see some stuff.
1: Brilliant. So lots for folks to follow up on. Sam, this has been fascinating. Thank you again for joining me. Folks, before you go, do me a quick favour. Like the episode, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or wherever you found it perhaps star it if that's what your particular podcasting platform allows and share the word with somebody else who might be interested whether that's a case of hitting share so that your friends know about it or just simple word of mouth you know if you've got a colleague or a friend who's going to be interested in this episode just pass the word on to them send them the link it all helps to grow the channel if you're on apple podcasts and i happen to know that 50 percent of you are you can also think about leaving a review hopefully a favorable review but you know be honest and if you're interested in going a little bit further as you know you can leave one-off tips so that you can do that via ko-fi the link is in the description or you can become a regular supporter via patreon there are all kinds of perks from from discount codes to voting rights and much more in between to say nothing of course of the shout out that goes in each episode and the opportunity to be part of the napoleon assist discord channel and the chance to have one-to-one meetups with me for the Emperor level patrons. I'm also unveiling in the run-up to the new year and the decision to go to three episodes a month up from the usual two. I'm unveiling a new tier, the Marshal level patrons. The Marshal level patrons get everything in the Commander and mentioned in dispatches. Uh, tiers so that is the shout outs the voting rights on the themed months the discount code from pen and sword but on top of that they will get the chance to dictate some of the future content so for every three months that you're a member of the Marshal tier you will be able to request an episode on a topic of your choice now there are sort of parameters around that it needs to be something that people are going to be interested in so you know asking me to do an episode on your great-granddad who served in the war of the sixth coalition probably isn't going to be feasible it also needs to be something that is genuinely researchable but within those obvious parameters oh and i'm not going to kind of interview you so you know publishers and um authors don't think that that's a, a bright way to get yourself on the podcast um but within those fairly reasonable, I hope, parameters, you will be able to request an episode of your choice. So if you're interested in that, take a little look at the Patreon link um, to find out more or to find out more about all of the other levels um, on Patreon. As ever, a big shout out to my patrons, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Steus and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham and Stephen Gillen. And my mentioned in dispatches patrons Alexandra Leon, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Coss, Anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, and Stephen Colson. I'll be back soon. But until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends, stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.